Boys and girls, every morning there is breakfast for you. Every day, your moms and dads provide lunch and supper. Do you ever think when you look at the food on your plate, do you ever think about how amazing it is that that food is on your plate at precisely the right moment when you need it? Do you have any idea all that was involved, the incredible processes that went on in order to bring that food, that nourishment, at the right time to you at that particular moment. We marvel at how God provided for Israel in the wilderness, which was amazing, for 40 years. They lived in a wilderness that was absolutely hostile to life. And yet God sustained them. He gave them bread from heaven. He gave them water out of the rock and preserved them for 40 years. But the wheels of providence that are going day and night, day and night, resulting in our provision is as extraordinary a miracle as that. The Dutch divine... Wilhelmus Abrakel, in his chapter about providence, really nails it down when he says, he says, when you're eating an apple, when that apple was growing on the tree, your name was on that apple. God had purposed that that apple would make its way to your plate. That's how involved the work of God's providence is. That's how amazing the word, the work of God's providence is. And so tonight, with God's help, we're going to focus on that wonderful work of divine providence by way of Lord's Day 10 of our Heidelberg Catechism. And so let read, let's read Lord's Day 10 as we hear the echo of God's word expressed in this Lord's Day. Question 27. What dost thou mean by the providence of God? The answer is, the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, Yea, and all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Question 28. What advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence doth still uphold all things? The answer is that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. And thus we hope to focus on the providence of God. And so, boys and girls, two things. First of all, the doctrine of God's providence. So what is it that the Bible teaches us about the providence of God? And secondly, faith in God's providence. That's what's addressed in question and answer 28. To what advantage is it now to us to believe all this, to believe in this amazing work of God's providence? So the doctrine of God's providence and faith in God's providence. What dost thou mean by the providence of God? Now, the word, of, the word providence occurs only once in the book of Acts, and the verb to provide we find in the chapter in Genesis where, uh, where Abraham is called by God to sacrifice his only son Isaac. And when Isaac asked the question of his father, where is the lamb 
Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And then Abraham answers that God himself would provide a lamb for the burnt offering. But those are the only two places in Scripture where we find that word. And actually, as a matter of fact, you don't find that word in the Dutch Bible at all. But again, this is a doctrine, just like you don't find the word Trinity in the Bible. Obviously, all of Scripture teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. And so all of God's Word is pervaded with teaching about the providence of God. Now, the word providence itself uh, comes from the Latin, from two Latin words, pro-video. And literally, it means to see ahead of time. However, in English now, it has a dual meaning. So it means that God knows everything ahead of time. He knows all the circumstances of your life and my life ahead of time. He knows precisely how your and my life will unfold according to his sovereign plan and according to his sovereign purpose. But it also means that God is actively engaged in seeing to it that at precisely the right time, that which we need to live our lives here below, that at precisely the right time, all of those things will be available to us. And that's the reason, boys and girls, I began with that question. Because you and I, we take it so for granted that there is breakfast on our place, that we have lunch and supper. We fail to think about the amazing providences that are involved to accomplish all that. Especially when we live in a land like ours, a land of such unparalleled prosperity. And so the work of providence is a mighty and remarkable work. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures. So what the Catechism here confesses, that the God of whom we learned in the ninth Lord's Day, where we consider that wonderful truth that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is for the sake of his Son also my God and Father, who will care for me in all of my needs, now, in this Lord's Day, we unpack that blessed truth of God's providence, especially as it unfolds itself in the lives of God's children, because that is also the focus of this particular Lord's Day. A congregation, the work of God's providence is as astonishing a work as the work of creation itself. By the word of his power, God in his infinite power called this vast universe into existence. But what's equally remarkable, that the creator of the universe also by that same infinite power continuously sustains the very creation that he called into being. And so God is not like a watchmaker. God is not the God of the deists. The deists believe that, yes, God created the universe and then he left it to function by itself. That's not what the Word of God teaches. It teaches that the creator of the universe is intimately involved in the work of his own hands. And by his power, he sustains the creation he once made. And that's so amazing, boys and girls, that if God were to withhold his hand for one moment, if for one moment God would cease to uphold his own work, the work of creation, everything would collapse. This universe would turn into utter chaos. We would collapse. We would not be able to live one more second. All oh, the power that is involved to sustaining this vast, vast universe is unspeakable. Think about it sometimes. When you drive at night, you look into the 
into the sky. We, we see a very limited amount. We, of course, we have these magnificent um, telescopes in space that allow us to peer into the depths of the universe. And still we haven't reached the end of it. But think of the power that holds our globe in place. We are suspended in, universe, in the universe. The power that keeps our globe spinning at the same speed, that power that allows our globe to make its circuit annually around the sun, is extraordinary, congregation. It's extraordinary. And so, first of all here, the Catechism focuses on the upholding power of God. So when you study Reformed dogmatics and when it deals with the doctrine of providence, it always highlights three components to that providence. First of all, there is what we call preservation. So God preserves his creation. Secondly, there is what we call cooperation, which means that God is intimately involved in all of his creation, in all that happens in that universe. And thirdly, there is government. And that means not only that God is involved, but that he consciously and deliberately governs all that happens in this universe. Let me just briefly address these three. First of all, he preserves the universe. He does that what we call immediately, without any other means. And that is, of course, how the entire universe is held together, held together by his power. And when you think that Solomon, in his dedication prayer, when he makes that amazing statement that even the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, to think that God is greater than this incredibly vast universe of ours gives us a glimpse in how great this God is. You and I, and I include myself, we often have such, such mistaken understandings of the greatness and of the majesty and of the glory of our Creator, who by His power, by His immense and infinite power, keeps this entire construct of our universe functioning flawlessly, moment after moment. And He does that immediately, without any other means. But He also does it immediately, by way of means. And we see that especially in the lives of his creatures, his living creatures, and specifically in the lives of human beings. How God upholds us by making available to us the means we need in order to sustain our lives. This is all beautifully expressed in Jeremiah 31, verses 35 and 36. Listen carefully. Thus saith the Lord which giveth the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. So when we see that name, the Lord of hosts, it literally means the God of this vast universe. No wonder that in the Old Testament often we see how God's people encouraged themselves in the fact that this Jehovah, their covenant God, was none other than the Lord of hosts, none other than the God of heaven and of earth. In Hebrews 1 verse 3 we read about Christ, that he upholds all things by the word of his power. The Christ unto whom has been given all power in heaven and on earth. And so we need to understand about this work of God's providence, that what is true of creation is true of providence as well. So what have we learned about creation from Colossians 1? We've learned that all things were made by him, and they were all made for him. 
Very important we understand that. By him and for him. As I pointed out to you in, in a, few, a few weeks ago, that's how we have to view this universe. That's how we have to use creation. God the Father created that universe by his Son and most importantly for his Son, for the glory of his Son. But that's true for providence as well. And so God the Father, by his Son, preserves this universe for and by his Son. The congregation, that explains why the world is still going. That explains why God still provides for a wicked and corrupt and morally decadent world. A world that lives in rebellion towards Him. That explains why after the flood, why God said to Noah, He said, I know that man will continue to be depraved. Man will continue to be wicked. But I've made a covenant. I've made a covenant. As long as the world stands, there will be seed time and harvest. There will be rain in due season. And why? Why did God commit himself to preserve this world of ours? For the sake of his son. Because the reason why history has not yet come to an end is because all those for whom Christ gave himself as a sacrifice have not yet come to a saving faith. In other words, all of God's elect chosen in Christ, given to Christ, redeemed by Christ, have not yet come to Christ. And until that's completed, God will, by the power of His Son, uphold and sustain this universe. But not only does He preserve it, He cooperates in it. So what does that mean? What that means, that God as creator is directly involved in everything that's happening in this universe. To suggest otherwise is to deny his Godhead. To suggest that there are things going on in this universe in which he is not involved means that things would be happening over which he has no control. And of course, God's Word clearly teaches otherwise. Now, where this gets difficult is that includes sin as well. This is one of the most difficult aspects of the doctrine of God's providence. That even when men are engaged in sinful actions, when men are engaged in wickedness, that even then this is not outside of God's providential control. This is a mystery. Again, we have to look at two biblical impossibilities. So either that would mean that God would then be the author of sin, and we know that's not possible. God cannot possibly be the author of sin. The other extreme is, is that God would have no control, that God, in other words, that men are engaged in wickedness, in wicked acts that are beyond the control of God. That's also possible. And so, God's involvement in all of His create, all that's happening in the universe, cannot mean that He's the author of sin. And it cannot mean that he's not involved because, again, as I said before, that would mean that things are happening, things are developing in our world that were not anticipated by him, over which he has no control. And so we have to maintain those two biblical truths. God is involved in everything. That's why on the day of Pentecost, Peter so remarkably expressed that when he addressed the audience before him. He says, you with wicked hands have slain the Messiah, but it happened according to the determinate counsel of God. And so when Jesus was crucified, when Jesus was crucified, 
God was involved in all that was happening on Calvary's cross without being the author of their wickedness. And yet he was involved in such a way that all of this happened according to his determinate counsel. When the brothers of Joseph, when they sold their brother, it was wicked what they did. Wicked what they did. And yet Joseph himself said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In Acts 17, where Paul stands, remember, in Athens, where he speaks to this Gentile audience, when he gives this remarkable message about who this unknown God is, he says about him, he giveth to all life and breath and all things. So that means, very practically, if a criminal pushes the trigger to shoot somebody, that criminal would not be able to move his finger to pull that trigger without God's cooperation and involvement. And yet, in such a way that God is not the author of his wickedness. He giveth to all life. In other words, even a criminal could not move one muscle, could not do anything without God enabling him to do it. But the abuse of it is his sin. Acts 17, 28, For in him we live and we move and we have our being. What an astonishing statement. How often do we stop and think about that? In him we live. In him we move. And in him we have our being. Boys and girls, you know what that means? That you and I could not exist for one moment, not for one moment, if God did not enable us. Our bodies would cease to function. The very fact that your and my bodies are functioning properly is because in him we live and we move and we have our very being. And then finally, of course, government, where we see God's intervention to accomplish his purpose. And of course, the Bible is filled with examples of God intervening in the affairs of men, of God governing and causing all things to work together for good. That's why we call history, that's not original with me, that's why we call history the unfolding of history. We call that his story. Because that's what it is. It is ultimately his story. That means that even now, as concerned as we are, as alarmed as we are, everything is unfolding according to the determinate counsel of God. It's remarkable how Nebuchadnezzar how he learned that lesson. Open your Bibles to Daniel 4. Let's read what his confession is about this amazing God. Daniel 4. Daniel 4, verses 34 and 35. So this is after God judged this proud and arrogant king who stood on his, the roof of his palace and said, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built? And then God struck him for seven years. He crawled on the earth as an animal. But the amazing thing is, when God delivers him from this, the very first thing that Nebuchadnezzar does, he lifts his eyes to heaven. And out of his mouth comes this, Amazing confession. And I think most theologians feel that this is one of the most remarkable statements about the sovereignty of God and about God's sovereign rule, his sovereign government. Verse 34, I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. 
And here he comes, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Here's a man who had become acquainted with who God really was. And by the way, this chapter in Daniel is written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. And I would concur with a number of scholars that this conversion was real. I believe, I believe firmly that God transformed the heart of this man. Because this confession is so remarkable. This confession shows such extraordinary insight into the very character of God. And as I said, the amazing thing is that the first thing he did when he came to his senses, the first thing he did, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he begins to confess all that is recorded for us in Daniel 4. The most remarkable statement in all of Scripture about the sovereignty of God. So in Ephesians 1 verse 11 we read, according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. All things, all things without exception. And we see that in the life of Joseph. How God governed the life of this young man in most remarkable ways, in perplexing ways. Ways that at the time made no sense to this godly young man. It made no sense that he who feared God ended up in jail. And yet, we know that God was governing, governing providentially, governing the life of Joseph in such a way that when Joseph had been sanctified by all that was happening to him, then it was God's time to exalt him to the position of viceroy. Think of the life of Ruth, how remarkably God governed her life, how remarkably God governed her steps. Because we read in Ruth 2 that it was her hap, it was her hap to light on the field of Boaz. That's an old English expression to say it was by chance that she went to the field of Boaz. Because she didn't know anybody. She just went because her mother-in-law encouraged her to go. There were all kinds of fields she could have chosen. But she, she stepped onto the field of Boaz. And there you see God governing her. She had no idea what the consequences of that one step would be. That one step onto the field of Boaz. On that one step hinged the entire plan of redemption at that moment. She didn't know that. Boaz didn't know that. But as you know, this resulted in a marriage of Boaz and Ruth. And out of that marriage ultimately came forth David, out of whom came the Messiah. So at that moment, as it were, the entire work of redemption hinged on that moment. God governed her steps. Because that's what God is doing, you see. In other words, the overall purpose of God's providential government, His providential work, is the accomplishment of His purpose. He's doing all things according to the counsel of His will. That's why in God's providence, King Ahasuerus could not sleep. And because he could not sleep, he asked for the historical chronicles to be read to him. And as a result, he discovered that Mordecai had uncovered a plot against him, that he had never been rewarded for what he did. You know the rest of the story. You know what came out of it. As a result of that providential moment that he could not sleep, as a result of that, the tide turned completely. And why was God doing this? To perform, to, do the, to, do, to work all things after the counsel of his will. Had Haman succeeded in his evil plot, the Jews would have been destroyed. 
and the Christ would not have been born. And that simply could not be. And so Azarus had no idea what this meant. He had no idea that God was in all of this, that he could not sleep that night. And think of Jonah. Jonah, who was determined to go in the opposite direction, as far away from Nineveh as he could. And then God sovereignly controls a fish of all things, a creature, to be there at the right moment that when they threw him overboard, swallowed him up and thereby preserved his life so that he came to Nineveh after all. Those are just examples of God's government. So he preserves, he cooperates, he governs. He is totally involved in the work of his hands. Because congregation, that fits his character. In other words, this magnificent creator of infinite greatness, of infinite power, and of infinite glory is a God of love. And so he loves the work of his own hands. And so when Jesus says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, he uses the word cosmos. He so loved his cosmos. He so loved his universe. Not just the world, but he so loved the work of his hands. And he gave his only begotten son to accomplish redemption. So that through his work, there could be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness would dwell. Because God the creator is the provider of his creation. And he is involved in his creation because he loves the work of his hands. And so also his providential dealings are the exercise of his love. And then it goes on to say, so what does this mean practically? What does this mean practically? So that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hands. So what the catechism here does beautifully, as it echoes the word of God, it simply illustrates that this providence of God pertains to every aspect of life. There is not a single detail of our lives that does not fall under the umbrella of God's amazing providence. First of all, it says here, it pertains to the growth of the herbs of the field. I hope you notice as we read Psalm 104, how remarkably... How remarkably the psalm expressed all of that. Let me read verse 14 of Psalm 104. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle. An herb for the service of man. That he may bring forth food out of the earth. And having lived now in northwest Iowa for seven years. I've witnessed this. Season after season, this amazing work, every season to see that after the farmers have done their part, to see the amazing work of God as new life begins to emerge again from the earth. At the end of Psalm 104, the psalmist says that The Holy Spirit is involved. He renews the face of the earth. This happens every season. Every season, as it were, is is a preview of the final resurrection. It's a preview of the final restoration of God's magnificent handiwork. Because every fall, creation, as it were, dies and goes to sleep. And every spring we see a resurrection. We see a re-emergence of life. And Psalm 104 tells us that's the work of the Holy Spirit. I want you to remember that, boys and girls. I want you to remember that. Next spring, when you see the leaves coming on the trees, when you see the flowers opening up, 
when you see the crops emerging from the soil, that's the Holy Spirit who is renewing the face of the earth. It's God, God the Creator, providing for His creature. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle. In other words, God as Creator cares not only for us and especially for His people, but He cares for every living creature. Astonishing. That's why in Matthew 6, Jesus rebukes us for our unbelief. He said, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. Look how they are provided for. And you have doubts about your Father's heavenly care for you? And he brings forth food out of the earth. So back again to your breakfast. Why was your breakfast on your plate, boys and girls? That's God's doing. There's a reason why we pray at our meals. We pray and we acknowledge God to be the giver of all things, but how often we do that almost without thinking about it. Do we stop and think? We need to stop and think when we sit down how amazing this is. God's, this is God's doing. He brings forth food out of the earth. And it doesn't matter how much the food industry is involved. The food industry could do nothing unless God, as the provider, brings forth food out of the earth. Then it talks about rain and drought. In other words, God governs our weather. He governs the track of every storm. He determines where it rains, where it doesn't rain. Listen to Amos 4, verse 7. And also I have withholden the rain from you when there were yet three months in the harvest. And I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. There you see God's sovereign government. So we have to be very careful how we talk about the weather. So I think sometimes when people say, well, the weather is lousy. Be careful what you say. Because the weather, whether it storms or whether the sun is shining, is all governed by the hand of God. Think of Israel. Why was there a three and a half year famine? Why did God withhold rain? Because of their wickedness, because of their idolatry, because of their worship of Baal as the goddess of fertility. God sovereignly withheld rain for three and a half years. By the way, you see his mercy. He should have done it for seven years, but he cuts it in half. But three and a half years, we've seen in history God's judgment on whole civilizations. That's what happened to Babylon. When Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon, it was an extremely fertile region. It was a prosperous region. It's no wonder that Babylon was such a prosperous and powerful city. But then you read Isaiah 13 where God pronounces judgment upon Babylon. And at the end of the chapter, you will read what the outcome would be, that that fertile region would permanently be altered. You talk about climate change. God pronounced permanent climate change upon that wicked culture, and that for the remaining of the history of this world, it would be nothing but a wilderness, which is still true today. Think of where the Dead Sea is. If you've been there, you know it is so unspeakably barren. It's so unspeakably dead. There lies that Dead Sea glistening in the sun. There is absolutely no life. But it wasn't always that way. Before God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, it was a very prosperous region. That's why Lot wanted it. This was the perfect place for his cattle. But God permanently 
God permanently changed the topography of this region, permanently changed the climate. And so when we think about our weather, when we think about the weather patterns, El Ninos and so forth, all of this stuff, we need to realize God's hand is in all of this. And we can only stand amazed, also our own nation, when we think of our idolatry, when we think of our immorality, of our wickedness, that God is still so gracious to give us rain in due season, year after year. All because of that amazing covenant that he made with Noah. So it pertains to fruitful and to barren seasons. Listen to the language of Acts 14, verse 17. Paul uh, is in Lystra. He says this about God. He left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven. There you have it. Rain. The rain that fell today was God's gift from heaven. And fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and with gladness. Meat and drink. In other words, the provision of nourishment. We've already alluded to that. Let me read a passage from Psalm 145, verses 15 and 16. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat or their food in due season. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. And so, congregation, when our needs are met, when we have our food and drink at the right time, it is because God opens his hand. He opens his gracious hand to us, and he provides for our need, satisfying the desire of every living thing. It pertains to health and to sickness. And so our health is a gift of God. We should be sick all the time. We are fallen creatures. And so the health we are able to enjoy is a gift of God. God sustaining our frail and fragile bodies. And we all know from experience how little is needed for us to be out of commission. One little virus. Look what it did in the past years. What impact it had around the world. Oh, that whole COVID crisis. A remarkable example of God's providential rule. Everybody's busy trying to find who to blame, who caused all of this. And certainly there are human, there is a human element here. But what, what, I, what I remember vividly in 2020 is that I saw the hand of God who within weeks brought our entire culture to its knees, who brought our entire culture to a screeching halt. All the idols that our culture worships, all of a sudden, the sports stadiums were empty. The cruise ships did not sail. The casinos were empty. Sadly, our culture learned nothing from it. It's just like the Philistines. When they came into the temple, they saw Dagon fall into the ground. They didn't get the message. They put Dagon back on his feet. And sadly, that's happening in our culture. We've learned nothing. And even it frightened me at the time to hear how people were talking, we'll, we'll get back in our feet. We'll get back in our feet. I was hoping at a time that God would maybe use this worldwide crisis. And yet, sadly, it appears that it accomplished nothing, that men are as determined to continue in their sin in spite of God's remarkable providential intervention. So health and sickness all comes from his fatherly hand. Jeremiah 30, verse 17 I will restore health unto thee, and I will heal thee of thy wounds, saith the Lord. 
You know what it means, boys and girls? Every time you were sick and you got better, it's because God restored your health. Who healeth all thy diseases, Psalm 103. Think of all the things we've been through in life, all the things we have faced, all the calamities, illness, whatever, and here we are today. All because of God's remarkable providential government. Riches and poverty all come by his fatherly hand. And so, congregation, if we prosper materially, it's because God has governed our lives accordingly. Job found that out. Job was a, a wealthy man. And then God took all his wealth away from him. All of it. He had nothing left. And then when Job came to the right place, when Job had learned the lesson he needed to learn, then God sovereignly restored his original health, and he even had more than he had before. But Job knew there was only one explanation for it. It's because God prospered him. Congregation, how we need to be reminded of that. Because we are accustomed to extraordinary prosperity. In the history of the world, people have never lived like we do. Never in the history of the world have people enjoyed such material prosperity as we do. And do we accredit ourselves? Or are we reminded, or should we be reminded, that this too comes from the hand of God? Proverbs 22, verse 2. The rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. And then finally it says here, yea, and we're going to leave it for that. We'll deal with question 28 next week, the Lord willing, or the week thereafter. Yea, and all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What a beautiful statement. Here the catechism is linking to Lord's Day 9. It's talking about providence, especially in light of God's children. All these things, all the positive providences, all the negative providences, all the perplexities, all the trials, sickness and health, all these things do not come to us by chance, but by His fatherly hand. And so we, for us there is no such thing as chance. Chance does not exist. Nothing ever happens. Not even a hair falls from your head outside of God's will. Not one sparrow falls to the ground outside of God's will. All these things come to us by his fatherly hand. That's why David confessed in Psalm 18, as for God, his way is perfect, and he maketh my way perfect. That means, dear child of God, nothing is happening in your life that God has not sovereignly purposed for you. All your circumstances, all your trials, everything about you is governed, not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. We talked about that last week when we briefly refer to Romans 8, and I want to bring that here again, Romans 8, 28, 29. And again, I want to emphasize those two verses should never be separated. People are very quick to quote 28. All things must work together for good, period. No, to them that love God are called according to His purpose. For we are predestined, predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And that means, dear child of God, your heavenly Father governs your life, all of your circumstances, with one objective in mind, and that is to conform you to the image of His Son. That's why God has loved you with an everlasting love. That's why He has chosen you in His Son. He has given you to his Son. He has redeemed you by his Son in order to be conformed to his Son. 
That's God's overall. And God will use all circumstances, both positive and negative, to accomplish that objective so that we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why so often God brings trials in our life, difficult, perplexing providences in our life, circumstances that compel us to crucify our flesh, because you and I are not naturally inclined to crucify our flesh. But God will so direct our lives, He will so govern our circumstances that we must deal with our flesh in order for it to be crucified. Because only in proportion to the crucifixion of our flesh will we begin to resemble the Lord Jesus Christ increasingly. All things must work together to accomplish that sovereign purpose. All these things, it says here, all these things, they come to us, not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. Next time, the Lord willing, we will then see what does this mean for the believer? If we believe all this, if we truly embrace the biblical doctrine of providence, if we believe all that we have considered from the Word of God, what does that mean? How does that work its way out in the life of the believer? And the next time we will see is if we really believe in God's providential government, we will be patient in adversity, we will be grateful in prosperity, and we will be confident for the unknown future. So congregation, may we go home and may we marvel, marvel at the work of providence. Marvel at how our Creator is so completely involved in every single detail of our lives. May we live our lives accordingly. May our conduct at home, in the workplace. May it reflect that we understand that everything about us, everything we do, is all under the umbrella of that amazing work of God's providence who works all things according to the counsel of His own will. Amen. Let's pray. O oh, glorious triune God, how magnificent Thou art! How magnificent are Thy ways! How magnificent is the work of Thy providence, whereby Thou dost preserve Thy creation, cooperate in Thy creation, and govern Thy creation, ultimately for the glory of Thy Son and the spiritual well-being of thy children. Lord, may that encourage us as we enter a new week. May we realize that as we return to the workplace, that our lives are governed by thee, and that so we may put our trust in thee day by day, and that day by day we would consciously acknowledge thee for all the undeserved blessings that we enjoy as fallen creatures, that we may marvel at thy care for us, that loving care which ultimately, as we will see as we continue, has been secured also by the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. And so keep us safely as we return home and bless the labor of our hands. Be with those who will be traveling, keep them safely, and gather with us again this coming Lord's Day. We ask it. Only in Jesus' name, amen.